And now reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. I'll begin in verse 12, read through verse 15. This is from the Common English Bible translation. Now I tell you to love each other as I have loved you. The greatest way to show love for friends is to die for them. And you are my friends if you obey me. Servants don't know what their master is doing, and so I don't speak to you as my servants. I speak to you as my friends. And I have told you everything that my father has told me. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. One prevailing view in Christian understanding today is that Jesus paid some sort of price for our sins by dying in our place. Now, there's a lot of parts to what I've said even already. And many seem to believe that God mandated or required this death or else we ourselves would die in our sins. In theological language, as I said earlier, we call this the substitutionary sacrifice or the substitutionary atonement theory. Uh, in this view, Jesus is the substitute who satisfied God's wrath by undergoing punishment, well, that we all deserve. This view is, in fact, is so widespread that it is seen as orthodox and traditional Christianity. Both those who accept it and defend it and those who criticize it or reject it tend to see it as traditional Christianity. Now, this might surprise you, but I'm here to let you know that it is not an ancient view. It's not the view that what the biblical authors would have had in mind and was not present during the first 1,000 years of Christianity after Jesus died. Through language referring to Jesus, though language referring to Jesus' death as in the Bible for us and as sacrifice is certainly found in the New Testament, the substitutionary part, the substitutionary understanding of this whole language in other words, him in our place was never actually founded until the year 1097 A.D. by a fellow named Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm, uh, he addressed the question, why did God become human incarnate in particular in Jesus? Well, Anselm's answer was that God, God's justice requires that the penalty for our sins must be paid from the human side of this God-human equation. But since we are all sinners, we cannot adequately make that payment. It's a debt we just can't collect enough pennies to pay off. Only a perfect human, in Anselm's view, could do it. But then a human could not be perfect unless also divine. So, in Anselm's theory, God became human in Jesus in order to pay this debt, this price, for all of our sins. But here's the thing, God never said any of that 
The biblical authors did not have that in mind. Anselm did nearly 1,100 years after Jesus' death. What? what? It's their plain as day. Well, look up the word later. Eisegesis is the reading into the scripture someone else's interpretation. Exegesis is to pull out of the scripture the original meaning, the meaning that the authors would have had in mind based on their history, culture, language, and social norms. So this understanding, we, what we want to do is exegete. We don't want to eisegete, read into it. We want to pull out the original meaning. This understanding, this substitutionary atonement theory has serious problems, by the way, and they often go completely unchecked or unexamined by Christians. Let me just list some, some of them. There's just a few, okay? We can't list them all. Don't have time, believe it or not. First, by implying that Jesus, quote, had to die because of our sins and that this was part of God's plan to, quote, save us, it actually distorts the historical meaning of the actual death of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus didn't just die. He was murdered. He was executed. He was killed. Killed not by a criminal or by an assassin or by an accident, but executed by established authority. A combination of governmental authority and the dominant religious authority of his day. And he was not just executed. To make it more complicated, he was crucified. A form of Roman execution used for a very specific class of offenders. Those who systematically defied Roman authority. Usually leaders of resistance movements, whether they were violent or unviolent. Crucifixion was how they made example out of the leaders of these various resistance groups. That means the authorities did not like what they heard from Jesus or about Jesus. They saw Jesus as someone challenging their established authority, and they knew that he was beginning to attract quite a following. And if they had simply wanted to get rid of him, they could have killed him in a back alley or let him rot in a jail cell, but they didn't. They crucified him, a very public prolonged form of execution deliberately designed to be seen and interpreted as a deterrent. The message was clear. This is what happens when you challenge us. But when Jesus' death is seen as a part of God's plan so that our private, personal sins can be forgiven, all of this historical meaning and context disappears. Jesus' death is domesticated at that point by obscuring the fact that he was killed by the powers that ruled his world. They killed him, but they didn't do it so that he could die for our sins. It was a very political death because his message threatened the political rules by which they governed and ran the synagogue. Second, the substitutionary sacrifice or atonement view turns God, from a theological perspective, into a monster. It portrays God as primarily concerned with punishment and, if you really want to be honest about it, a thirst for blood. 
Think of what this says about God. God, in this view, is a lawgiver whose laws we have violated, and God must enforce the law by punishing us unless there is, uh, unless there is adequate enough loss of life or shedding of blood. Furthermore, in this view, the death of Jesus was part of God's plan. It was plotted out in this view. If it was God's will that this immeasurably great and good person be executed, what does that do to God? Now, you know you're attending a church that has bought completely into this when at Christmas you hear them say, Ah, baby Jesus, born to die. Sometimes this is spun in such a way to make God loving as well. You know, God loves us so much that he, and and the masculine pronoun usually goes with this understanding, I find, was willing to give up his only son to die in my place on a cross. But even with that spin, you know, it sounds better. The punitive character of God dominates that view. Somebody must pay the price. Somebody must pay the penalty because God requires blood, either ours or the blood of Jesus. Do you see what this does to God in that view? Third, this view distorts what Christianity is about. The substitutionary understanding of Jesus' death reinforces the widespread notion that Christianity is mostly about individual, personal little sins and forgiveness and believing that Jesus had me in mind and you in mind when he died for us. And most of all, if we believe all that, we can enjoy a blessed afterlife. But what if this isn't what Christianity is most importantly about? What if those things are just a part of it? What if Christianity and salvation are really about the transformation, yes, of ourselves as people, and yes, in some level, about experiencing forgiveness, but not just as individuals? What if this thing we call Christianity is about also the transformation of the systems at work in this world and the way that life is lived? What if this thing we call faith is really a way of living by which we seek as God's people to transform the world into a more loving, forgiving, and just place, not just for a few, but for all? Substitutionary understandings of Jesus' death distort this. They, they make Christianity all about being forgiven by believing Jesus died so we can go to heaven. And this view causes people to value one another and even the earth, by the way, in a disposable manner. Have you noticed? Oh, this world is not my home. We're just passing through. Rather than, no. You've been given authority to care for the earth. You've been given authority to protect the earth and one another on this journey. The Gospels and the rest of the New Testament ascribe several meanings to the death of Jesus. And all of these meanings are what scholars tend to call very post-Easter understandings. 
meaning we have zero evidence at all to think that Jesus or his followers sought to find meaning in his death like this before it happened. Early Christian communities thought of these things on the, this side of Jesus' death and shared them in story and scripture that we enjoy today. In this view, all of these meanings, I want to talk to you about the meanings of death. First, we realize he was crucified. In Paul's letters and in the Gospels, this is a major emphasis. When Paul summarizes the Gospel in a few words I love in 1 Corinthians, he reminds the community at Corinth that when he was with them, he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. A magnificent passage in Philippians also specifies the form of Jesus' death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. To emphasize in the world of the first century that Jesus was crucified signaled at once that this gospel was an anti-establishment gospel, an anti-imperial gospel, to put it in language, anti-patriotic a gospel. Also in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, when Jesus speaks three times of his upcoming death in Jerusalem, Mark 8, 31 through 33, Mark 9, 30 through 32, Mark 10, 32 through 34, those three predictions are never about his dying for our personal sins, but always about the fact that the authorities would execute him. They would plan to kill him. The second thing in the view, I think, is a healthier way to view and understand the death of Jesus is the connection between death and resurrection. Death and resurrection are a dying and rising with Christ. Within this understanding, um, the death and resurrection of Jesus became a metaphor for the personal and ultimately communal transformation at the very center of the Christian life that early Christian communities sought to live together. We hear this in Paul's autobiographical comment, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2, 19 through 20. The old Paul, he goes on to say, has died. A new Paul has been born. In Romans, Paul speaks of dying and rising with Christ as the meaning of Christian baptism, Romans 6, 1 through 4. In Mark Matthew and Luke, Jesus, as he journeys to Jerusalem, invites and implores and commands that those who would follow him take up their cross. That is, embark on this path that leads to a death and resurrection. In the gospel, according to John, a different image is used to make the same point. It's the image of being born again. To be born again or to be born of the Spirit in John 3.3, 3, which is to die to an old identity and way of being and living and to be born into a new identity and way of being and living in this world, not some other world. The death and resurrection of Jesus embody a path of personal and communal transformation. This is also one of the core meanings of the Christian season of Lent, to journey with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, the place of death and resurrection on a journey toward transformation. Third thing I want to say in this view, 
a more healthy view, I hope, of Jesus' death, we find the revelation of the love of God. And this is the only thing that really has the power to change hearts and lives and the way we live our lives as a community. This understanding, this revelation of the love of God has an important premise without which it doesn't make sense. Namely, that Paul and, and other early Christians saw Jesus for Christians, not for other groups, but for Christians as the decisive revelation of God. In Jesus, in what Jesus was like, we can see in some way what God is like. I'm talking for Christians, not for others. Thus, in Jesus' passion for this kingdom of God, uh, this beloved community he dreamed of, and his challenge to the government and religious leaders during his time, at the risk of his own life, we see a sort of mirror of God's love for all the world. Now note in this understanding, it's not a punitive God who sends Jesus to die or else would be coming for you or me, but a God who is passionate about the transformation of this world into the best version of itself. A God's eye, view, and reality when we get it right. Let's return to the theme of sacrifice for a minute because I think this is what trips most people up. Substitution seriously misunderstands the purpose and meaning of the word and term sacrifice in the Bible in general. Most basically, sacrifice means to make something sacred by offering it up to God. As the Latin roots of the English word indicate, sacrum, that is sacred, and facere, to make. So an animal in ancient Jewish tradition then, according to some of their offerings, would be offered up to God and then in the process become Sacred And often within ancient Judaism, the animal was cooked and then eaten by those uh, offering the sacrifice, symbolically creating a meal with God. You understand? Communion with God. God and the people consume the same food in this view. Gift and meal often go together in sacrifice in the biblical context. Sacrifice in biblical times had many meetings, friends, but none of them were substitution. There were daily sacrifices offered by priests in the temple. These were about feeding God who dwelt there. There were sacrifices of thanksgiving. These were about gratitude. Nothing was asked for. There were sacrifices of petition. Here something was asked for because people were in need. They were experiencing drought or famine or plague or war or personal misfortune and so forth. There were sacrifices for purification. These were to remove what was thought to be, you know, impurity. For example, in Jewish culture, after the birth of a child, a woman was considered impure for a period of time, and the impurity in their view was removed by offering a sacrifice. But this was not about a sacrifice for sin. Giving birth was not sinful. These sacrifices were about removing ritual impurity, not about human sinfulness. 
There were also sacrifices that dealt with the issue of sin or wrongdoing. One offered a sacrifice, a gift to God to make amends, to heal uh, the broken relationship. But even here, the notion of substitution was never present. And sometimes Christians think the scapegoat, the second goat mentioned in connection with the ritual for the Jewish Day of Atonement provides a model for Jesus' death to be seen as a sacrifice for sin. But it's a misunderstanding. In Judaism, the scapegoat was not sacrificed. Rather, the sins of the people were symbolically placed upon the goat, which was then driven into the wilderness. You can find this in Leviticus 16. The goat was to be a sin bearer, but it was not ever killed. It was not sacrificed in that way. Indeed, to have offered up a scapegoat laden with sin as a gift to God would have been repulsive. It would have been a sacrilege. Was Jesus' death a sacrifice in any of those particular ways above? Not really. But it was a sacrifice in the broader ancient meaning of the word sacrifice, a meaning that continues even into the modern world in which we live. If we don't misunderstand and eisegete our way back into problems, think of how we use the word today. We say a person sacrifices their life for a cause or for another person or group of people. We commonly speak of soldiers sacrificing their lives for the sake of their countries. If firefighters are killed in the process of rescuing people from a fire, we speak of it as a great, the ultimate sacrifice. Even when a death is not involved, sometimes we, we speak of people sacrificing their lives for the sake of caring for others in their family or in the larger community or world. Sacrifice and love, they do go together. People who sacrifice their lives most often do so because of a greater love. Three 20th century Christian martyrs come to my mind as examples of this combination of sacrifice and dying for others. The first, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, gifted, brilliant German Lutheran pastor and theologian who was executed for his involvement in the July 1944 plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. His life was a sacrifice even before his death, though. And he died because of his love for the German people and those whom they were victimizing and he was trying to protect of the Jewish community. Or I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who sacrificed his life because of his love for his people and his passion for the American dream to be as accessible for one group of persons as it is for any other. Or I think of Oscar Romero, Archbishop of San Salvador, who was killed in 1980 by an assassin because of his criticism of those in power who were oppressing the Salvadoran people. Did he sacrifice his love because he loved others? Absolutely. But were any of these deaths substitutions? Of course not. Of course not. Or else they would actually be meaningless if it ended there. 
so also we can speak of Jesus sacrificing his life, being willing to die because of his great compassion and love for others, with his deep abiding commitment for a better world, without in any way implying that God required him to do so or else would come after us next. It would be ludicrous to suggest that God required the deaths of Bonhoeffer or King or Romero, wouldn't it? No, they were killed because of their passion for a different and a better kind of world. So also Jesus sacrificed his life. He offered it up as a gift to God, not because God required it, but because he was filled with God's passion for the kingdom of God, the beloved community of God, a vision for the way this world could be driven by love and justice. Now that's love. So this raises some important questions for us. If we are willing to wrestle with them, that is, what are we deeply passionate about? What is it that we believe in so strongly that it motivates the way we live our lives each and every day? Do we have those kind of deep and passionate convictions? Do we believe anything strongly enough? We might even consider putting our own necks out there in harm's way if it took it in order to see it through. I'm not suggesting we go home and plan our martyrship. I don't think that's how it works. I am, however, suggesting that the example of Jesus' death should cause us to pause, to reflect on our own lives and our own passions, and to take a sort of inventory about what it is that exactly motivates each of us. For Jesus, it was his passionate, God-shaped dream of a more loving, more just world for all. And I pray that we find a way to continue that dream in our own authentic ways that only you and I can contribute. May God help us to do so. Amen.